You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast, bringing you news and opinion about surf culture, characters, coaching and competition from the Surf Simply coaching resort in Costa Rica. Find us on facebook.com slash surfing or at surfsimply.com. Hello and welcome to the Surf Simply podcast. We're recording on Monday the 29th of December and my name is Harry Knight. With me tonight is Rue Hill. Hello. And Asha King. Hello everyone in podcast land. For those of you who are still looking for the Surf Simply tutorials, they now have their own dedicated podcast as well as their own YouTube feed. So if you type Surf Simply tutorial into the search bar on any of those pages, hopefully they should crop up pretty quickly. So what have you guys been up to this week? I have had an extremely fun week. Uh, as you may know, listeners, we're recording in Costa Rica and this week we have had some amazingly good waves, but they've been quite hard to predict because Surfline and Magic Seaweed have been saying it's going to be flat. And then we've actually had some of the best waves that I've ever had since I've lived in Costa Rica, which is seven years. Yeah, well, it's, it's been the swell that swept through Hawaii, the two back-to-back swells that went through Hawaii last weekend are now hitting us. Yeah, and they've been hitting the beach at this crazy angle because it's like a 300-degree swell. So mm-hmm. they're coming in at almost 90 degrees to the beach. So we've got these beach breaks with these offshore Guanacaste winds throwing up these little peaks and... Yeah, I've just, I think I had more barrels the day before yesterday than I have in the whole rest of the year put together. Oh, it's been amazing. I've been lucky enough to score a ride up with Rue every day to a beach break up to the north, and I've never seen it like that before. It's usually big walled closeouts, but it's just balls from heaven this week. <laughs> yes, on Christmas Day, there was just me and you up there. There was two oh, other was guys, a, it was wasn't It was a Christmas there? miracle. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it was like Miracle on 34th it Street. It was a conveyor belt out there. Yeah, in the meantime, I've still been sitting with my leg up and not iced. Yeah, well, there you go. I did say you were too old for uh, skateboarding. Yeah. Ooh. 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 What you can't see, listeners, is that we have, we're have we one microphone short this week. So me and Asher and Harry <laughs> are hunched together really, really closely it's around two intimate. microphones, like right in each other's armpits. If pretty, I ever sound intimate. soft, it's because I don't really want to sit on Rue's lap. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so the big news uh, this week, obviously, Pipeline finished. Which was pretty awesome. Do you want to hear all about it? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, everyone, I'm sure all of our listeners know that Gabriel Medina has now won the world title. Uh, he didn't win Pipeline, but he became the first ever Brazilian to have won a world title, which everyone made a lot of fuss about. I feel like it's a fantastic achievement, and I'm a huge Gabriel Medina fan. I personally would have liked to have seen a little bit less flag-waving, But, you know, that's not really to do with surfing. That's more to do with my own personal politics. And that isn't directed at Brazil. I'm a huge fan of Brazilian surfing. and I love Brazil. That's just generally in surfing. I would like it if the surfers were sort of looked at as surfers rather than as, you know, so-and-so from this particular country. I just don't think that's the main main feature of them. It is interesting, though, isn't it, that you're not alone in commenting on that this year. And yet, in past years, when Kelly or Mick or Joel are chaired up the beach with a flag over their neck... No one makes any comment about it. Yeah, and can I say, I feel exactly the same way when it's an Australian flag or if it was to ever happen that there was a UK flag there, I would feel. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I would feel exactly the same way. I just feel like, you know, it was interesting because I was watching, I'll, I'll talk through what happened in the contest, but just skipping forward to when Medina actually won the title. I've followed him ever since he first got on on tour and I'm I'm a big fan of his and, you know, I've surfed with him a few times and he's amazing in the water. And when he won the world title, I really felt like I was part of it. I felt like 
I was really excited for him to win. I felt like I'd followed his story and I, I just, a, just a big fan of the whole thing. But then there was so much uh, flag waving going on on the beach. I thought, well, if I was there on the beach, I wouldn't be able to wave one of those flags. I'm not Brazilian. Just like if it was John John that had won, I wouldn't be there waving a Hawaiian flag because I'm not Hawaiian or an Australian flag if it had been Mick or an American flag if it had been Kelly. Although I think they're making their own flag for Kelly. I'm not sure. <laughs> but the point is, I just felt like a lot of flag waving kind of excludes people rather than includes them in the victory. And, and, and I don't think that that's necessarily a positive thing. But, you know, I, I do appreciate that almost everyone in the world disagrees with me. I know Brazilians seem to be a pretty passionate group of people about their country. They, I, Mindine is almost an overnight celebrity there. I know he's had television appearances on almost a, every major network since he won the world title. So that's pretty cool that surfing has rocketed someone like that into pretty much overnight stardom. That is really fantastic. I agree with you. And, and it is really nice, you know, notwithstanding what I just said about flags, it is really great to see a Brazilian uh, win the world title because it has just been flip-flopping between the Americans and the Australians and the Hawaiians for a long time. And isn't it nice to see someone win the world title that's, what is he, 21 years old, 20 years old? Yeah, I think he was going to be the youngest ever to win the world title, but he's a matter of months older than Kelly Slater was when he first won it. So I guess that's just one thing that Kelly Slater is going to be holding on to for a while longer. Okay, <laughs> I've digressed quite a lot. I'm going to get back to pipe. So uh, they ran the dual heat format all the way through, uh, which I like because I think it's great that they had a lot of time in the water. It does make it a little confusing as a, a, a spectator sometimes what's going on. It, I feel that sometimes it detracts from the drama slightly because unless you've been really concentrating, someone takes off on a wave and instead of like sitting on the edge of your seat in excitement, your first thought is, okay, have they got white or black arms? Have they got priority or not priority? Which heat was that again? Yeah, I, I hate it. You don't I'm like gonna it. straight up say I hate that dual heat format. I don't. I understand why they do it. There's this whole legal thing in terms of running contests and keeping the time down. But I, I think it it just undersells the North Shore to to force non man on man competition. I absolutely love the dual heat format. I mean, imagine if that was at a wave like Lowers, where there's so many waves coming through in a heat, and you're just utilizing almost all of them. When there's four people in the water. Uh, you just get more waves ridden. The biggest problem with watching surfing, especially for a non-surfer, is there's too much dead time in the water, and that helps solve a little bit of the problem. That's that's true. I think I saw something, maybe you guys can help me out with this, I, I saw something online about how there was a law in Hawaii that, that you weren't allowed to have man-on-man -man heats. What, what was it? I think it's, it's in the pages of sort of civil ordinance, but um, they have a system where you're not allowed less than four people in the water at any one time, and it's with the aim of reducing the amount of time that a contest is keeping tourists and locals out of the water. That's kind of crazy living somewhere where that's actually part of the government's priorities to worry about. I mean, life's pretty good when the government is legislating time in the water as being something. Yeah, well, and so, so now, of course, the hui are now... How'd you Soon. say that again? No, I don't want to say it again because <laughs> someone will come and beat me up. Dahui. Dahui. Uh, but uh, yeah, so they're, they're now suing the ASP for running uh, less than four men, obviously, during round one and round four. There are three people in the water at any one time. And I'm sure as just a petty, petty backlash against the ASP for, for getting rid of the wild cards, 
so, so, suing. so what are they? What, what do you think the Hui are actually hoping to achieve by doing this? Well, I mean, do you think it's just petty, or do you think they're actually it's part of a longer game? Well, no, because what what will happen is is if they win, the ASP will lose its license to run the North Shore events, and trying to get a license to to close the beaches there is very very difficult. It would be. 10, 15 years before the ASP got back into Hawaii. So that would basically be it. That would be the North Shore off tour. Can you imagine if Dehui won and the world title was not decided at Pipeline? I mean, I, where I feel, else would you decide it? I feel that they're, they're cutting off their nose to spite their faces. It's, it's ridiculous. Well, that's pretty interesting. We'll have to follow that one up later in the year. Yeah. Maybe they'll win and the ASP will be banned from the North Shore and then the ASP will come back next year and be like, well, hey, we're the WSL and it's all fine. <laughs> we're good. <laughs> we're all good. <laughs> so getting back to the contest, the first thing that happened was Geordie pulled into this huge uh, backdoor wave and busted his shoulder and he's he was out for the rest of the contest. I'm not quite sure if it's pretty serious. I, I know someone posted on his Facebook page to ask him how he was doing. And he said that uh, he thought he was going to have to have surgery, but he didn't need to go in in the end. So I'm, I'm assuming that he's going to be sort of fine and up and ready to go for next year. Uh, you're going to go through a bit later on who's who's actually on tour next year, aren't you? I sure am. Nice. The other things that were pretty cool, John John's first wave, that was awesome. Oh. John John's second wave, that was also awesome. And then the whole rest of the contest was like a lot of fun from there on in. It was they got they got such good waves, not just for the invitational and the and the first couple of rounds, but the whole of the last day was just awesome. John John's first wave, he he, he kind of took off and he was looking like he was gonna go right in backdoor. And then he, he sort of stood up and then did one of those Dane Reynolds style two hands behind him, lay back in the face got barreled, came out, it just looked so cool and casual. And his second wave that he got, he grabbed the rail, got a real nice pipe barrel, came out, and there was so much sand in the channel that the whole wave was kind of like mutating up. A lot of guys were getting closed out on it. A little bit later on, Freddie P and Owen Wright got pretty smashed trying to come out of the, the barrel as the whole thing folded over in almost dry sand. But John John just did this massive upside down backwards air that looked like a kick out except that he sort of rotated all the way around that end up over his board again and he nearly stuck it um you know and I know that obviously when you're having these contests it's all about the barrels that's where the, the points are but I don't know when someone's doing stuff like that you've got to just have your jaw on the floor when you're watching from the beach how would you even score that if you made it it's a it's a, you know it's a 10 point maneuver at a place where they only score the two. I would have been really interested to see that. I know, I know. I mean, it, it really is amazing when you're doing airs that big in powerful waves. You've got to be start thinking that they count for something. Uh, there's that clip that's been going around as well the last few days of uh, the, the rodeo that he pulled there as well, which was pretty insane. Oh. So that was, unfortunately, John John didn't make it all the way through, though. Um, one thing that I thought was interesting, like at every surf contest, the, the, the commentators spent a lot of time talking about different surfers being in tune with the ocean, having this sort of sixth sensibility to tell when waves come in. I mean, you know, we're doing a lot of coaching and, and we spend a huge amount of time in the water telling people that they need to observe waves when they're a long way off, predict what they think the wave's going to do. And then when they don't catch the wave, rather than just turning and looking for the next one, actually observing and seeing if the wave did what they thought it was going to mm -hmm. do so that you'd build up your ability to predict waves. And then we kind of marry that together with your agility in the water so you can get over to them. And, you know, I think that there's a lot of, cherry picking and confirmation bias when it comes into watching really good surfers surf and I, I feel like sometimes the commentators almost attribute like magical uh, powers to people like Slater when they say he's able to 
have waves come to him. I don't really think that does any favours to surf coaching by kind of uh, alluding to that sort of stuff. But, you know, again, that's just my own personal take on it. Jadson Andre also served pretty well. I like his massive shorts. Everyone's rocking the short little hipster shorts now, but Jadson Andre has still got the long baggies. It's a throwback to 2001, maybe? Yeah. Or is it I just because like he's a very little man? Well, you think he's wearing short shorts as well? He's just a very short I actually man. stood next to him in France, and he's a pretty big guy. He's about six foot, maybe a little taller. Buff guy. So I think the baggies are just baggy. <laughs> you think he's just a little bit gangster? Maybe? <laughs> I think he is. Uh, what else happened? Matt Wilkinson. I was I was really hoping for big things from Matt Wilkinson. I love watching Matt Wilkinson in uh, in contests. He's always got funny things to say in the interview. Wasn't there some <laughs> interview where he said, that, oh, I'm just trying to lose all my heat so that I always get up against Slater in the first round. So I increase uh, the views on my yeah. on my webcast. I just thought that was pretty funny. And uh, so I was hoping for big things, but he he didn't do very well in his heat. And I think he's off tour, isn't he? Yeah. No, no, Actually, he's requalified. No. He's requalified through the C, through the QS. Oh, has QS. he? So he was one of the guys that dropped off the CT and came back on through the QS. Yep. There was quite a few of them, wasn't there? I um, think he solidified it at sunset, so that was pretty clutch. Ah, okay. Yep. Um, Medina was just, like his first wave was just this stamp of authority. And it was just just amazing. Interesting, you were talking about the dual heat format before, because when Medina went in the water for his round three heat, which obviously he had to win... And there was still Felipe Toledo was out in the water uh, surfing the other heat. And Felipe Toledo's heat had priority. And it kind of looked like, I, I was just watching it. And I was thinking, I wonder if he's letting some of the good waves come through so that Gabriel Medina can actually take them. And then afterwards, in his post-heat interview, Felipe said that he was taking the rights to leave the lefts free for Gabriel Medina. So... I just thought that was kind of interesting. I mean, you know, it's, it's great to go for your fellow countrymen and support them. I feel like if I was out there competing, I'd probably be just looking after number one. And by number one, I don't mean Gabriel Medina. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there, was, there was Joel and Andy did the same thing a few years back, didn't they? Oh, yeah. They beat Slater in the final. Mm. Oh, yeah, that's right. Well, Medina didn't do Felipe Toledo any favours when he knocked him out a little bit later on in round five. So obviously that wasn't reciprocated in perhaps quite the way that Toledo would have hoped. I don't think Toledo is too worried. I mean, he left him out in the water, uh, Gabriel Medina, after they figured out he won the world title. He was just celebrating on the beach, and I don't. Philippe still couldn't manage to win the heat. Yeah, so it was, it was kind of cool because Mick Fanning was in the heat before. This was in, in round five. Uh, and then when Mick Fanning lost, that meant that Gabriel Medina had won the world title. But he just by coincidence was in the next heat against Felipe Toledo. So he, he was actually already in the water as the buzzer ran down. Mm-hmm. And it looked, it seemed like um, Gabriel Medina had decided already that no matter what happened, he was going to stay in and just keep surfing his heat. Mm-hmm. And then it just was too much for him. Mick Fanning paddled over and gave him a big hug. I mean, you sometimes forget that even though they were rivals, they were actually both surfing for Rip Curl. They traveled together most of the year. Staying in the same house. Yeah, was, yeah staying in the same house together. So that was a really nice moment. And then I think there were so many people going crazy on the beach. And uh, Gabriel Medina just, I think he just got overwhelmed. I mean, he looked like he was crying and he paddled into the beach and they chaired him around the beach for 10 or 15 minutes. He left Felipe Toledo in the water on his own. And Felipe only managed to rack up like two or three point ride while Gabriel Medina was on the beach. And again, I was wondering whether that was because nothing came through or because he was thinking, I'm going to do the the gentlemanly thing and wait till Gabriel gets back in the water. I really don't know. But uh, it was it was kind of cool to see. I mean, it was everyone. No one really knew what was going on. 
Gabriel Medina then came up the beach and he got interviewed by Ronnie Blakey. And he did a, a, a just a nice little uh, post-winning his world title interview. I mean, he was so overwhelmed. He, he, I didn't think he really knew what to say, as, as you could completely understand. And then Ronnie Blakey said, you know, your heat's still going on. Are you going to get back out there? And he was like, oh, yeah, all right. <laughs> and he sort of ran back down the beach, jumped in the water, and then managed to win his heat, which was pretty cool. And of course, you know, that, that, whole, that whole day was full of drama. But the, the real story, I think, or, or one of the stories, was Alejo Miniz, who was really the... Uh, he was like the, the kingmaker. The uh, kingslayer. Well, a kingslayer and the kingmaker. Yeah, he knocked out Mick Fanning and he also knocked out Kelly Slater. And I don't know if you guys saw the way in which he knocked out Slater, but it was pretty, pretty incredible. Was pretty he, awesome, impressive. He needed, he needed, I think it was an 8.8 and he had like less than a minute to go. And he just pulled into probably the best wave of the day or, or certainly as good as the best waves of the day. It backed all this huge, great square thing. Uh, just got spat out. I mean, it was just, it was a really fantastic bit of surf drama. It was a real nice irony, wasn't it? Because that's normally how Kelly wins. Yeah, I know. Coming from behind, last minute buzzer beater. So it's quite nice to see him beating at his own game. Yeah, and actually Kelly gave a really nice interview after the heat as well, where he just said that was just the best wave that came through all day. And I saw Alejo pull into it and I just saw him get spat out and that was awesome. And, And Kelly had a big smile on his face in the interview, which I think was nice. And then the final was just, the drama just didn't let up all the way through to the final where Medina was up against Julian Wilson, who, like Alejo Menez, had also had a pretty bad year this year and uh, looked like he was going to lose the Pipe Masters. Uh, And then with two minutes to go, he needed an 8.8 and he just pulled into this huge backdoor barrel. It was almost like a repeat of Alejo Menez's heat against Kelly Slater. And he got spat out. And and I think everyone on the beach was pretty sure that was going to be a nine something, which means he would have won it. And then with one minute, 40 seconds to go, Medina pulls into this huge left, which looked like a nine plus ride as well. And the whole beach just went bananas when the, when the final buzzer went. The Brazilians were waving the flags. They chaired Medina up the beach. Uh, and then Julian Wilson was sort of nervously, quietly walking up, waiting for the stores, scores to come in. And he ended up getting a nine seven and Medina ended up getting a nine two. So, so Julian Wilson won the Pipe Masters and, and won the Triple Crown. And uh, I, I think that was really nice. That was, that was a, for me, that was a real nice uh, way for the day to finish. Medina gave him a big hug there on stage together. It was a huge day for both of them. It was, as, a, as a fan, it was fantastic. Well, nice to see them making up as well, because it was, uh, was it last year or was it earlier this year when uh, Medina and... Uh, two years ago at Paniche. Two years ago at Paniche, when they, they, there was a little, little falling out between them almost. A little falling out indeed. It was a similar situation, wasn't it? Yep, right at the end of the heat, I think it was... Uh, Medina that was leading the whole time, Julian won right on the buzzer, and Medina had a, had a few tears, I think. Yeah, I think the whole of the Medina camp then was telling him that he won it, and uh, I can't remember if they were cheering him at the beach, but they were treating him as if he'd won, and then the scores came out and Julian Wilson won, mm-hmm. and that's almost exactly what happened this time, <laughs> although almost. I think Medina didn't care that much, obviously, because he had the world title in the bag, but yeah, he was being carried at the beach and everyone was going crazy. A lot of deja vu because that's almost exactly how Julian Wilson lost in Haleiwa at the beginning of the Triple Crown. Dusty Payne beat him at the end of the heat after, I think, Julian May got a 10 at the beginning. Yeah. So, a deja vu going on in Hawaii. So, at the conclusion of Pipe, we now have the death of the ASP Association of Surfing Professionals and the birth of the WSL. That is the Wrestling Super League? 
You know, it is in fact not a wrestling federation, but a top group of surfers could have fooled me. Do you think that WSL is something that rolls off the tongue nicely? I do not. I don't. I haven't really heard anyone that loved the name, but I'm sure they got a good reason for it somewhere. Well, interestingly, they said that they had positive feedback from all the surfers that they questioned about the name. <laughs> yeah, they're like, "Do you? Would you like a job next year? Yes. Do you like WSL? <laughs> yes. Good. Thanks for filling in our survey. Don't bite the hand that feeds you. Well, clearly, it's going to just get called the SL, like the CT is called the CT. Exactly. Well, no, because remember that this is it, there's still going to be the WCT. Mm-hmm. It's still the World Championship Tour, but it's now under the, the WSL is now the name for the ASP, not the tour. So it, it's the organization that's going to encompass the CT, the WQS, the Big Wave World Tour, the Longboard World Tour. All of those things are now part of the World Surf League instead of the Association of Surfing Professionals. So they're going to have to get a new website? I guess, yeah, a new web address, everything. It's, it's interesting. They're obviously making the name change to appeal to a, a non-surfing mainstream audience. You know, the, the ASP maybe doesn't, immediately explain what it is whereas the the WSL maybe sounds a little bit more like what you would expect from you know the NFL the I think WWE (laughs) (laughs) so we're getting a bit off topic there but not only is sorry you're gonna tell us about next year not only is the name going out but we lost both rookies from the 2014 season Mitch Cruz and Dion Atkinson will not be returning they did not qualify through either the CT or the QS which is pretty interesting because Dion Atkinson is going to be at the banquet at the beginning of the year, receiving his Rookie of the Year trophy, and then essentially having to leave because yeah. he's not on the tour next year. Yeah, that's what I was, I was going to say. I thought he was he was Rookie of the Year, right? He was. Rookie is that the, of the first year. time a Rookie of the Year has not got on tour for next year? I think so. No way. So, but yeah, there were only two fresh faces in 2014. I think we have six new next year. Uh, one Australian, two Brazilians, and a new Hawaiian. And a, new, oh, and and a, a Kiwi. Oh, and a Kiwi, Ricardo yeah. Christie. Nice. Who's Ricardo Christie? Oh, Ricardo Christie's a legend. So he was the last one to qualify from the QS. He only did so because Julian Wilson qualified with his good showing of pipe. He's a really cool guy. He's a, he's a pretty cruisy surfer. He was dropped by his main sponsor in 2010, almost quit surfing, and ended up crowdfunding his way onto the world tour. Oh, that's pretty cool. Do you know how he did it? Did he just sort of do a Kickstarter campaign or something? Yeah, it was. I think it actually it was GoFundMe.com, and he really appealed to the other New Zealanders. Patriotism working out. Yeah, there you go. So that's the flip side of it. So other than Ricardo Christie, joining him will be Matt Banting, who is 20 years old from Australian, just a fierce competitor. He's get really going to do really well at the spots like the Gold Coast. Might struggle in places like Chopu. Yeah. He's a pretty lightweight surfer. Wiggly Dantes, a Brazilian, he's really well-rounded. He's done well in the North Shore the last few years. Has done too. really well. He, uh, I think he had the Fiji wild card this year. Also has the best name out of anyone on tour by Miles. Ah, the commentators are going to have a field day. Well, I think the old, the old school commentators would have, but I feel like the commentators nowadays, they've sort of, uh, they've got to watch their P's and Q's a little they bit. They do. Uh, speaking of funny names, we got another Brazilian joining Wiggly on the world tour next year. A man that goes by Italo Ferrara. Ferrara? I don't know, I may have butchered that. Sorry for any of our Brazilian listeners, but he's really impressive. I googled him before this podcast, actually, and... Man, the kid is an insane air game. He can stick almost anything and has 
backflips that he can do in his sleep. In all the videos I watched of him, I don't think I saw a single rail turn, which doesn't say it can't do it. It's just, I don't know, his airs are pretty good. Really looking forward to seeing him next year. It's one of the interesting ones, I think, with the break going from the QS into the CT, is that with the waves being a lot better on the CT, you see the guys who are better on rail doing mm-hmm. much, much better in the CTs. And, and it's interesting watching some of the guys when they come up from the QS onto the CT struggling a little bit with that just change in in how they're working it you know um they come in and they're, they're going for these mm-hmm. air reverses and they're not getting the scores and it's it's when they switch over and start start surfing on the rail and you normally see it about halfway through the year they kind of figure mm-hmm. out how they're going to get the points yeah, yeah. There's, there's quite a lot of waves on the tour this year that are kind of quite big fat waves that need a lot of carving like margaret river and bells um, yeah, probably not going to do any backflips at Chopu either. <laughs> I don't know, John John maybe. Yeah, you just you never know with John John. Uh, you were mentioning Jadson Andre really favoring the long shorts earlier. Italo seems to be under the same fashion trend. Nice, nice. I'm going to be uh, flying a flag for the uh, baggy short wearing fraternity. There you go. That's only because you got little legs in I'd... every short. <laughs> I have the same issue. Well, I've got the trendy hipster Hurley shorts, and everyone's like, why are you still wearing baggies? And I'm like, that's just how long my legs are. Uh, another new face on the WSL WCT next year is Keanu Asing who is a really powerful Hawaiian. He's the first Hawaiian we've had on the world tour in a while, correct? New qualifier? Yeah, I think so. Well, Dusty Payne, when he qualified? I think since Dusty Payne in 2008, he might be the first one. Uh, Dusty Payne also coming back on the world tour this year. Amazing run in Hawaii. I don't think anyone was really considering him before his win at Haleiwa, but he won Haleiwa, and then was it a second at Sunset? Dust, Dusty Payne's going to be my man to watch for 2015. Yeah, he seems to have it all figured out. So is it, is it the top how many surfers out of the QS go into the CT? Oh, uh, well, it depends how many qualifiers there are. Uh, theoretically, it replaces the bottom. Actually, it's the bottom 10 and the top 10 swap around, theoretically. But obviously, a lot of the guys who are in the bottom 10 of the CT will start doing a few QS contests towards the end of the year. So it's a... It's a, theoretically a straight swap between the bottom 10 and the top 10, but there's a lot of overlap. Does the 10 for 10 include the two wild cards? No, that's, that's, that's outside of it because the, the wild cards are theoretically for people who are injured. So This uh, year, yeah, it's CJ Hobgood and Glenn Hall. And Glenn Hall still suffering from that back injury in Fiji a couple of years ago. Yeah, so I, I guess the point is that if you didn't qualify through the QS, you can apply for the wild card. It's funny because I, I actually I don't think CJ was injured this year. I think he was awarded the wild card and there was a lot of backlash about it. People thought he was over the hill and didn't really deserve a shot. And he had a pretty interesting Instagram post responding to that where he sort of reminded everyone that he is a former world champion. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, CJ Hobgood's just stance, that real nice square front foot and that back knee really dropped in, pretty much forms the basis of the stance that we're coaching on a daily basis. I mean, when I'm coaching, he, he's the one guy that I always tell people to look to in terms of, uh, so that's his technical approach to all of the, the turns that he's forcing. So is Kelly going to be on tour next year? Questions everyone's been asking, and the answer is yes, Kelly will be returning for the inaugural year of the WSL. He said so in an Instagram post the other day, and going with our wrestling theme of the evening, he said... I'll be getting prison ripped for next year's 
world tour, and I prepare to hashtag rip people's faces off. So competitors on the WSL, I'd, I'd, I'd have your guard up. You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast. So going into 2015, we've got a few exciting things happening, uh, as well as the changeover from the ASP into the WSL. One of the things I'm most excited about is the opening of a couple of new wave pools around the world. So uh, we, we've been following this quite closely the last few years because we've, we have a ton of people come and stay that, that we're coaching and they always ask us the same thing, which is that why don't we sort of duplicate and make more resorts and do more kind of coaching programs and we always get stuck in the same position which is where it's quite difficult to actually find the locations to do it so you and I've been talking for a few years now about opening up a resort with a wave pool as part of the the coaching facility that is still my dream and so the old school way of making uh, the wave pools is quite inefficient the, the waves like the Wadi Adventure out in Abu Dhabi the way they do it is to pump an awful lot of water into a holding tank and then dump it and release it. And it, it uses a lot of energy to generate one wave. It creates a lot of turbulence. There's not a lot to go from. There's um, quite a few companies that have been, I think everyone's sort of been aware of them, little social media posts and things like that. There's Kelly Slater's wave pool, Weber wave pools. Um, but the real big one that, that's been all over the social media the last couple of years has been the wave gardens um, because they're the only guys right now that have actually got a full-scale working model uh, out in the Basque country. Yeah, so the one they've got now, you always see footage of it during the September and October leg of the year when the CT are in France and Portugal, and then on flat or stormy days they seem to pop over and shoot a little section in that wave garden pool. And it seems like it's getting up to about the kind of the waist-high kind of size. The most perfect waist-high wave you've ever seen, though. Well, that's true. I, I mean, my concern with these is always the reliability of the technology and and also you know whether it's financially viable to build it and run it well so you bring me to an interesting point so the the first thing there with the size is that the facility in spain is a test facility and they're saying that that wave that they produce is four and a half feet is what they're calling that wave is that sort of trough to peak on the front trough to peak on the front four and a half feet which i would i would kind of agree with and they're saying that they can produce a 1.9 meter wave on the full size thing so that's what? six foot three <laughs> wow I, well that that's I would a like pretty to good see. wave. same shape now here's the other thing the existing uh facility is 40 meters wide by about 200 meters long Okay. The full-size versions that they're currently building in the UK are 300 metres long by 115 metres wide. Wow. So they're significantly wider than they are longer. Yeah. Now, one of the reasons behind that is because, because of the turbulence that the wave generates, they can only produce one wave every minute. Uh-huh. Okay. Now, that wave's obviously split either side. I'm, I don't know whether everybody's seen the footage, but running down the middle of this long, thin lake, there's a pontoon, and out of both, out of one wave on each side, effectively, there's a left and a right running down either side of that pontoon. Now, what they're going to do with the wider one is then reform that wave on the outside banks so that you'll have a smaller intermediate level wave. Oh, okay. So that you've effectively, for each run they can do one run each minute but each one of those runs will actually produce four rideable waves okay and, and the technology for this one is not that it's lifting up water at one end but it's got like a, a, a kind of a, a pallet 
moving through, creating it's, the waves. Yeah, sort of like, it would like be more, wings, like an aeroplane wings at forty-five degrees that are on a conveyor belt being moved through the body of water. Is absolutely, that right? yeah. Which which should theoretically be a lot more efficient because you've got direct. Uh, drive through to this uh, hydrofoil. What's it going to cost to like build one of these things, and what's the running costs going to be, and how many people can you have in it at a time, and therefore, okay, yeah. how many, how much is someone going to have to pay to use it, and is it going to be practical to run, and is it going to be practical to, okay. to go and pay to use as a surfer? Absolutely. So, Wave Garden estimate that to go from flatland undeveloped site to an operational pool would cost between six and seven million euros. So that's uh, about seven and a half to eight and a half million US dollars. Which okay. is a not insignificant investment. Um, however, I would think that that's comparable to a lot of other sporting sort of facilities that are built. Well, particularly when you consider that, that that's talking about creating a prepared site that's about the same size as six or seven football pitches. Right. Okay. And how much does it cost to use this facility? Uh, well, I'll get to that in a second, but you might be able to help me with a few of these of these more technical terms here. So, okay, so Asher, Asher's fresh out of his master's degree, so we've let's just see how much him. of it is still there. Uh, so we've got, uh, from that 6.7 million uh, investment, they are suggesting that you would have an IRR of 20%. Your 20% internal rate of return? Initial nice. rate of return, yeah, I, I, I think that might be right. Um, and that you would be able to do uh, 1.5 million euros in EBITDA. That'd be earnings before income tax... I don't know what the DA is. Uh, a couple of other things. But yeah, so they're, they're suggesting that, that with, um, with the money, uh, you know, with, with all the costings and everything, once you've got people coming in and using the pool, uh, you'd be able to pull about one and a half million a year out of it. So uh, that sounds, you know, doable. I don't think a 20% IRR is very good. And it is its internal rate of return. I wish I had more comparisons for it because I, yeah, I don't think a 20% internal rate of return is... Is so, that huge? So, what is an internal rate of return? I think it's the percentage interest that it would make net present value viable. Internal rate of return is not a very good company valuation model either. You'd use NPV. What's NPV? Net present value. So you're basically saying how long your money's tied up and how much your income is going to be. Yeah. So I think it's interesting that they chose the IRR as their valuation that they're promoting. Because that's typically used as, that's, that's probably the second most viable one. You can still use it in a business scenario, but it's not as accurate as a net present value. So you think the fact that they're choosing to use that as representative of the, of the financial viability of the business perhaps is a little bit of a red flag that they don't have that much confidence in it? I think it is. You also, you, I don't know, internal rate of return is what you use to compare separate investment projects. So it'd be, it's, it's basically, you said it's 20%. It's what you would use to compare several different projects. It, it wouldn't be the maker, you know, it wouldn't be if I have one option. That's not what I would look at. Well, but so presumably then they're talking about um, a lot of these wave pools eventually, I think, will be part of water parks. They yeah. won't be the, you know, the sole... If I was choosing between three projects, if I was going to use, I would do a wave pool, like a, a snow park... Or a skate park. I'm just pulling these out of the air, but I would say which one has the highest IRR. I wouldn't present it as a solo. Well, so number. this was that that number was coming from the Wave Garden, who provide the technology. Okay, I still it would still be to decide between separate projects. But so it's it's the technology provider are providing that number to allow you to make that decision. And how much does it cost to use this facility? Um, I know that one of the facilities that they're building in the UK, they're suggesting they're going to charge you uh, £8 to go into the 
uh, into the resort and then £24 on top of that to use the pool for an hour. That could probably work, I would think. I mean, to, what, to, what's it cost to use a tennis court for an hour? You tell me you play tennis. Yeah. Uh, probably like, I pay 15 bucks an hour to use the tennis court that's near my house. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I'd, I'd pay double that to go surfing. To go surfing good waves. Yeah. So, anyway. Especially if the waves were one, one and a half metres, nine feet on 1. the face. 1.9 metres. 1.9 metres, that's six foot nine. Oh, sorry, six yeah. Six foot three. Six foot three on the face. Yeah, so, I mean, that's well overhead for me and underhead for you. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so anyway, one of the interesting things that's, that's been happening, like I say, Wave Garden's the first one that's really got off the ground. There's a couple of other companies that are talking about building American wave machines, supposedly have a project somewhere in upstate New York. Uh, Weber Wave Pools are talking about maybe opening something on the Sunshine Coast in Australia. But the ground is being broken on two Wave Gardens within about 50 miles as the crow flies, maybe a little bit more than that, but, but pretty close to each other in the UK. Uh, and it's quite interesting just looking at the two different philosophies of the two setups. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, so one's in Bristol, right? So there's two setups. One is called Surf Snowdonia. And as the name suggests, it's up in the Snowdon National Park, which is a mountainous region in the north of Wales. It's quite a wild, remote region uh, in the north of Wales. The other is called the Wave Bristol, um, which is just outside the town that you grew up in and that my parents now live in. Um, and is much more in a, a sort of hub location. Uh, for surfers in the UK. And what's the different philosophies that they've got? So this is where it gets more interesting. Surf Snowdonia definitely don't seem to have the ideal location on first look, but what they've done is, is they've taken over an old aluminium smelting works and they're investing £12 million, pounds, uh, roughly €18 million. US dollars. And they're going to turn, not only are they going to put the wave pool in to create surfing waves, they're also putting a wakeboarding lake in with a, an overhead wire on it. Oh, okay. That's a really good idea. They're going to put uh, residential, you know, a hotel in. They're going to put really nice restaurants and shops and business uh, setups like that in so that when people come, they reckon they're about an hour and a half uh, to two hours from a couple of pretty big cities in the UK. So it's going to be easy for people to, to come in for the day. And Snowdonia and is a pretty beautiful part of the country. Snowdonia is absolutely stunning, so it's a great backdrop. But they're going to have a lot of people coming in um, to use it for, the, for that reason, um, because they're, they're within a good location. Are, are they near an airport that can, you can get to easily from Europe? Are they going to be just hitting the UK market, or are they going to try to get Europeans in there? Well, it'd be tough. I mean, Liverpool and Manchester airports wouldn't be close, but neither of them is particularly, uh, yeah. particularly big on the international market. But anyway, the interesting side then, they came onto the scene much later, the project in Bristol has been around for about four years now. They've been trying to get set up. There's been rumours they'd be building here, there, wherever, that it was going to happen. There's been a, they've been very busy on social media. There's been a lot of momentum behind it. And then two years ago, this Surf Snowdonia project came up and they've broken ground first. They've gotten there very, very quickly. And it's being run. Um, there's a guy called Martin Ainscroft uh, who made his fortune at construction cranes. He had a big crane company. Him and his son um, are the, the sort of funding behind this. Um, and they've got uh, an ex-colonel from the army running operations on the ground. So, so I wonder where they came from. Do you think the son mm. just got into surfing and was like, hey, Dad, we should, you know, do this? Well, I don't know both. Uh, so Martin Ainscroft is very big in the Prince's Trust. Uh -huh. um, so involved in getting young people doing things. He's done a lot of uh, philanthropic projects towards regenerating, particularly he's from Manchester. 
um, and, and regenerating the inner cities around Manchester. So I don't know whether it's, it's come from there a little bit. So the Wave in Bristol is being operated by Nick Hounsfield and Tobin Coles. Okay, Tobin Coles is a marketing executive, and Chris Hounsfield's previous job was an osteopath. Okay. Um, so neither of them really have too much experience in construction, unlike the Surf Snedonia project. And uh, they've also got on board that the person who's been most vocal uh, for them, they've had him out as a spokesman, is a guy called Chris Hines, who set up Surfers Against Sewage, which is uh, the yeah, English version uh, of, yeah, yeah, of the Surf Rider Foundation. Of the Surf Rider Foundation, and he was also one of the big guys for the Eden Project, the big biodomes down in Cornwall. Yeah, that's pretty cool, actually, that Eden Project. So, Surf Snowdonia, cafes, restaurants, wakeboarding... Sounds pretty good. So they're, they're like get, a pretty good idea. They're going to the make wa- a destination, basically. The Wave in Bristol is going to have barefoot trails, a healing garden, a sensory mm. garden, mm. and a natural swimming lake. <sighs> so Damn. those are two pretty different angles to take. They definitely are. Now, the other thing is that the Wave has been interesting in that recently they went out and asked for crowdfunding. They were looking for £150,000. Yeah, I actually got an email from them about that. Asking if you'd like to give them some money. Yeah, I was like, wrong country, buddy. Yeah, well, so here's the interesting thing. So the, the, the Wave has asked for this crowdfunding money. They actually beat their target and ended up with about £220,000. If you actually read what they're asking for, that is the money is going to be invested to try and take the project off-grid as soon as possible so that even the construction is happening with uh, you know solar and alternative energy oh wow sources and of the here's the best bit of the crowdfunding that they're asking for and saying we need this money to do it part of that was a built-in two percent donation to other charities Hmm. so they have a very weird philosophy whereas surf snowdonia come in and said all right this is a business we're going to make this run we're going to make this operate um, and the really interesting thing is that uh, about a year ago, if you went onto the Wave Garden website, there was a lot of links through to the Wave Bristol because it was clearly the, the operation that had, you know, they'd got three years of back history with the guys in Bristol. They were looking to break ground and, and get that going. Everything on the Wave Garden website is now Surf Snowdonia. Oh, that's interesting. So it sounds like the guys who are doing the Wave Bristol are perhaps a little bit too idealist and are going to really struggle to actually make the numbers add up. Well, I feel so, and it's it's a shame because they have actually, they've run a very good, and I guess that this would be where Tobin uh, Coles comes in, they've run a really good social media campaign. They've been all over the newspaper, the news, they've got a lot of British surfers and, and people within the industry talking to them. They've got, uh, like I said, Chris Hines there, talking about the sustainability of the project and the, the ecological side of it. So they've run a really good campaign to persuade people to allow them to build this project but i do feel that in terms of actually pouring concrete they're maybe not going about it in the best way yeah i mean earlier on when you mentioned some of the side stuff that they're going to have on i was a little dismissive i mean my my own personal uh, misgivings about the validity of alternative medicine on one side for a second (laughs) i think their basic philosophy of having quite a, a kind of a natural seeming environment i think is a really nice one and I, I, I'm a big advocate of, of, you know, an ethically and sustainably run business, but I think it's already going to be a really tall order to try and make the thing work as a business. And I think that they're going to really struggle, which is a shame because I'd love to see them do it. Then I could go back and visit my mum in Bristol and be like, oh, no, mum, I've come, I've come to see you. And, oh, well, there's a, I'll go surfing while I'm here as well. I guess we'll try the way of park while yeah, I'm here. I could probably get her in it, actually. Yeah, probably. I mean, I would, I would love it if the Bristol Project came together. 
All right, hypothetically, you have the six-foot wave park wave at your, at your disposal, and you have the ocean with its inconsistencies. How often do you think you're actually going to spend surfing in the ocean? Well, in the UK, I think you're probably going to be in cold, a wave park a fair bit. Well, the trouble is in the UK, you have those prevailing northwesterly winds on the whole north coast of Cornwall, which picks up most of the swells. So you've got onshore waves about 70% of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the really nice thing about building a wave park is you could just face it straight into those winds which would be pretty cool. Um, I don't know. I mean, one, one thing that we've been talking about with Surf Simply is building a, a wave. Well, I don't know what technology we'd use. I mean, we, we had that project that we were going to run out at the uh, wave pool in Dubai. And then the yeah. day before we were all flying out there, the, the machine broke down. So, I mean, our philosophy has kind of been, let's wait, let's let them build these things. We'll see which ones actually work you know, aren't going to break down every five minutes and then let's duplicate one of them. But yeah, our, our idea was to build one up in the Central Valley in the middle of Costa Rica where there's really nice temperate climate, good winds, good uh, amount of water. And then people could come down and spend a week training there up in the hills and then come down to the beach for a week in the ocean, which I think would be a really nice way of doing it. It's certainly something I'd like to do. Yeah, I think this is the thing right now. There is no real example anywhere in the world of a financially successful wave pool. You know, a, a Typhoon Lagoon uh, is maybe the closest, but that makes money because it's part of Disneyland, not because the wave pool is actually financially successful. Um, the wave in Abu Dhabi is massively subsidised by the royal family out there. What do you think about if they can make a two-metre-high wave on the face, would you like to see a contest there? Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. I think that would be fantastic. Amazing. I'd love to see that. Come on the Wave Garden, Bristol. Do it. Well, either of them. Well, yeah, either of them. But yeah, that'd be fantastic. <laughs> but yeah, I guess I guess my final wrap up with this is that I really hope that both these projects work, but I do feel that the Surf Snedonia project may have the edge in that they're going into this as a business in order to make some money rather than going into it because of ideological reasons. <laughs> So every week we do a little forecast wrap up and a look at the surf contest results. Obviously, we've had a little roundup of pipeline already. So there's nothing else really going on. This is the down season for the for the contest. We're in the waiting period for the Piahi and the Todos Santos big wave events, but there's nothing too much on the horizon for those. Uh, we're also in the waiting period for the Eddie Icao. And in a couple of weeks' time, in mid-January, we've got a couple of WQS events starting up. But there's nothing too major on the horizon. On the forecast front, however, there is a lot going on. First of all, we've got a medium-sized typhoon off Japan right now. Uh, the swell from that could be expected to hit Hawaii over the weekend and make it to California by around Monday, Tuesday of next week. We've also got a couple of smaller low pressures in the southern Pacific that may push a little swell into Central and Southern America, but nothing too major there. There is a very deep low pressure going to form in the North Atlantic uh, around Monday, Tuesday of next week. That's the 5th and 6th of January. By the time we get through to Thursday, Friday and running into the weekend, there's going to be two back-to-back very big swells for Europe and North Africa. I'm not sure how well those will play out. We've got some very, very big wave heights expected, but the wave period isn't expected to be too great. So it'll be interesting to see if we get much off the back of that or if it just ends up being very stormy. 
Well, always staying on uh, Mark Matthews' Instagram feed is a good way of seeing any big wave action that's going on. Well, you bring me to the really important one. So the one thing that is happening there is not a particularly big, but a very, very tight low pressure going to form off South Africa around about the uh, night of the 1st. That is going to push a really, really long period, pushing up into the the mid-22nd period. So is that going to be hitting dungeons? No, it will, but it's going to be too close. Um, it'll be stormy in South Africa. But th- by the time it gets to Indo, Sri Lanka, and West Oz, it is going to be huge. Oh, so cool. well, I, I, I used to spend New Year's out in uh, Indonesia quite a lot when I was younger. And it's generally a kind of the off-season in terms of swell. And there's not that many people around, especially on all of the west coast side of the Bukit Peninsula. And when you just luck out and get an epic swell around Christmas and New Year's time, it can be so good. Yeah, well, I, I think looking around... Thursday, Friday, so that's the 8th or 9th of uh, January. Um, start start watching the web, or if you can book tickets, start booking tickets, because it's, uh, it's going to be a really good swell. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, that pretty much brings us to the end of this week. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Please let us know, or if you have any questions, please send them to us at podcast at surfsimply.com. Questions, suggestions, or feedback. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. But for now, it is goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for having me, guys. And do you have a quote to, to round us out, Rue? I do. I found this nice little snippet out of uh, a, a stand-up show by a British comedian called Simon Amstel, where he's talking about flags and nations, and I, I just thought this was really funny and really pithy. I like Simon Amstel. Yeah, so over to Simon. Bye. And do you remember when people felt proud of where they came from, like it was something to do with them? It's just where you happen to fall out of your mother's vagina. <laughs> Oh, I'm so proud to be British. You may as well be proud to be Caesarean. <laughs> and all these separate flags. If you're going to have a flag, have a flag of a vagina. <laughs> so then you can meet people and go, oh, hi, where are you from? Oh, same as me. Let's be friends. <laughs> How's peace finally achieved? The introduction of the vagina flag. <laughs> That was the Surf Simply podcast from the Surf Simply coaching resort in Costa Rica. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses for experienced surfers and technical coaching for entry-level surfers, go to surfsimply.com.